You're listening to the Underscore Transformation podcast, your practical guide to business transformation. Welcome to the first Underscore Transformation podcast. My name is Jason West. And my name is Joe Ailes. And together we're the founders of Underscore. Each week we'll be discussing one of the 10 points in our transformation white paper. In this episode, we'd like to take you inside our recent live debate. The event brought together some of the greatest minds in business change to debate the critical success factors in scoping a transformation. We found the views shared really interesting, and we hope you do too. So please let us know your feedback on the show. We'd love to hear your thoughts. I know a few of you have sponsored transformation programs or are currently sponsoring a program. I'd be keen to know for this morning's debate, what makes a good sponsor? What are the things that a sponsor can do, perhaps inadvertently, to cause a transformation program to fail during the scoping phase so it doesn't even get across the starting line? Can we begin our, our discussion there? Who's got a, a, an experience of what makes a good sponsor and who's involved in sponsoring a program currently, perhaps? For me, a good sponsor is someone who dreams about the outcomes and the vision and you actually help them deliver the program. I've seen often where you don't get the, that at all. You get a company bringing in an external organisation to act as that sponsor. So whether it be a, a large consultancy and they don't know what they're doing, the state consultancy needs to be the sponsor, make convince us to make it happen. And you've got a recipe for disaster when you do that. So for me, it's making sure that individual sponsor is really, truly part of that core part of the business and the final outcome is what they want. So it's an ownership? It's beyond ownership. It's, you know, it's feeling it. It's, it's the pain. It's the accountability. It's the responsibility. It's knowing what we, we get to that end point. It's, the ben- it's reaping all that benefit and, and that person visualising that and wanting the organisation to get there. And also the journey to, to get to that point. And, and as you say, that engagement piece of understanding that this is a long journey. There are going to be bumps along the road and being able to, to kind of stay the course, both in terms of, of what they want from a business, but also the individual functions that are then impacted by that. For me, it's about you know, ensuring that, that sponsor is emotionally connected to what you're articulating, and is It's emotionally connected to it, emotionally connected to the organisation and actually is authentic and does believe in the mm. outcome because the amount of sponsors... That we can all come across as doing it because it's a job. They're not necessarily emotionally connected to it and actually are prepared to get their hands dirty, prepared to get the hard jobs, the difficult times as well as the slightly easier. I mean, there's some real basics here, the emotional connection, et cetera, but they have to be well connected in the business. They have to be absolutely clearly linked with the business strategy. They need to have the ear of a CEO, ideally, and they've got to be really clear about the business benefits and how it really impacts the organisation. They can't articulate that, then it will. I think ultimately it won't. It won't succeed. But you have to have the right person in there who's got a connection with the board. And to achieve those emotional and alignment issues, what do you need to put in place to make sure that? sponsorship is is effective and successful do you think so i think there's uh, another aspect to it as well which is is not just about the capability of the individual it's also about the organization's state of development because trying to be a transformation leader and a sponsor and having that vision is great but if the organization isn't prepared to receive it it requires something different in that individual to, to help that organisation put in that infrastructure, that, that culture, the governance around it, because the role of that sponsor needs to be really well understood as, as that progresses. So, so I think that there's a key piece around organisational development. Yeah, and no, I'd, I'd completely align with that. I think one of the, the, the lovely cliche sayings of you know, changing the wheels of a, of a moving car, I think that there's a piece around the organisation having the capability to change and transform um, and that also means good support from the sponsor to understand that that's going to affect things like BAU the standard services that are being delivered and quite often is, as you go through that change and that transformation those services are, are going to dip in performance because you've got people that are distracted or you've got people that were enrolled and now be moved off into some sort of transformation piece so you're right you, you've got to look at that organization as a whole and see how the organization as a separate unit is able to then absorb work with that change and then go through that transformation actually what what we're there to do, you know, where we're going to play, how we're going to win, 
you know, car targets and you know, target customer and partners, decision processes and organizational pain points. So it's you know, somebody for me as sponsors really got to immerse themselves very, very deeply in the organization and really totally understand it because one of the things I think I've got to be well versed at being able to do is then understand that and then translate that into whatever the program is that they've got to deliver and think about the consequences across the whole piece. For those of you around the table that have sponsored transformation programs, uh, one thing I'm always keen to understand is, did anyone ever sit down and explain what the role of a sponsor is or or give you a role description or any sort of indication of what were you? (laughs) I think that's to my point about organisational readiness. If you're in a relatively unsophisticated business, which really does need to transform, it probably doesn't have that kind of change sponsor, you know, what does a change sponsor look like? Because it's never had to really think about that. So absolutely to your point, Jason, in my experience, it doesn't happen. And you're the person that's that's creating that. I think I've experienced a step sort of worse than that as well, where um, I don't know how many people around the table have gone into a programme and then the programme director's gone, right, so who's our sponsor? And you go, okay, this is where we're going to be starting, are we? (laughs) It's going to be an interesting program. So, yeah, it happens again and again. So that's why I try and embed that whole cultural mentality, all the things we talked about. If you can drive it from that owner, then you've got a good chance of success. Or the sponsor's too far down in the organisation because the real sponsor has just delegated it and delegated it and sat with a financial controller in one business unit in one country wondering why it's not happening. The other thing I'm also is sponsor behaving as an ambassador rather than a sponsor. So it's just a, a, a name, a badge that the individual wears rather than, than, to your point, being authentic, really driving the change. Where do we want to get to? So that's, I've often seen that is someone that doesn't get stuck into the detail as well, where the program is going wrong or the program needs a certain direction. The individual, the sponsor isn't sort of in the detail, uh, informed enough to make a set of decisions. I think it's a good point because sometimes programs evolve. So the whole idea may come from someone relatively uh, low down in the organization, but there is a kind of whole process of actually someone eventually grabbing this and becoming the clear sponsor and then getting into the whole business case, you know, building, et cetera. But it may not start with one person. It may start with a number of different people and eventually kind of, as you say, a sponsor kind of becomes clearer over time. But without a clear sponsor, clearly it's not going to work. It's an interesting point because listening to you, it sounds to me in some ways that there isn't a single sponsor always, that sometimes you almost need a the leadership team to be sponsoring it. Well, you have to have a coalition yes. Yes. Um, and the sponsor has to build that coalition, yeah. but there has to be one person accountable. Yeah. And I think to Catherine's point, if um, you, you can have a really well you know, defined sponsor, they know what they need to do, they've got the capabilities, they've done it before, but if the rest of the leadership team doesn't really understand this stuff, doesn't really know what they're doing or doesn't value it, um, then building that coalition becomes impossible. Mm. So I think sponsors are really, really important, but but I, I think, yeah, you've got to address the rest of the leadership team at the same time. I think, I think again, a number of sort of experiences is when actually that sponsor changes. So mm. if somebody leaves an organisation, you may then as the, as the new sponsor, sometimes you have to do a wholesale reset. You're having to unpick something else yes. which you don't really know or understand. You know, it's not being, being lived there and that can really impact a programme. Yes, you know. that, that's a really good point, actually, because as a programme director, it's one of the things you have to have in your mind as you're going through the scoping phase is that you know stuff happens, yes. politics happens, people leave. So... As you're building your business case and your case for change and you're building your coalition, if you're not fully aware of all the political shenanigans that are going on mm-hmm. and you haven't ensured that you've you've engaged the right people that are the potential successors to that sponsor, then when they leave, and I've had it happen before on a major programme, just before um, the, the final investment decision, the sponsor left. Thankfully, we, we'd had the, his successor as part of the programme. So yeah, absolutely, we had to resell the whole programme to him and he went through it with an absolute fine tooth comb because he was an operations director and he was great, but he was really into the detail and it was a choice point. I I think it's something organisations need to think about is is making sure, it's like you would do for any succession planning, Mm -hmm. for executive leadership, you need to have that succession for your sponsor and your key individuals on a a programme. I don't think we do that naturally. 
statues, mm-hmm. not just the, the succession into into that job. Yeah. The it's the succession of all the programs that they're yeah. they're sponsoring. Yeah, you're right. It doesn't yeah. often get thought about. Is, is there something there in, in terms of the, the selection of a sponsor on that side? Is the are we looking for the individual who is is going to align most with the the benefits case? You know, their department or their area, their, their figure, because it's usually a senior leader within the organisation, is are they going to, to reap the most reward from this change that you're trying to, or the transformation that you're trying to put in? So therefore, they're most motivated and, and directional. You know, one of the earlier comments of kind of externals coming in, obviously that there's going to be a counter there because as soon as they're done, they're out the door. Yeah. But that that ongoing change, that and moving into kind of continuous improvement, um, I'd be interested in anyone's thoughts around that in terms of, of that initial selection. Is it, is it, you know, go as far up the tree as you, as you can get it? So you're almost from that, that CEO level, or is there a piece there and trying to look at what are we trying to transform? What are we trying to change? Why are we trying to do that? Or at least be most affected by that change? Well, interestingly, we've seen something of that in the technology world, haven't we? That ERP implementations are now usually being run out of the CFO's office and not the CIO, because the CIO is actually taking the next generation technology and process change on board. And, and the ERP is just vital, it's essential, but it is not so much the, the future of the business anymore. So yes, you've got the, the functional owner that really, truly lives and breathes it and will benefit from it and continuous improvement. But when we talk about transformation, it often has a wider impact than just the function. As we just touched on for ERPs, it's, you know, it will impact HR for the driving the organisation. It impacts IT from the, the, the technology, the digitisation you're doing. It impacts the business in terms of the reporting so they can make their decision. It impacts finance. When the person within that function comes up with the idea and the business case, the case for change and drives it forward and then gets five blockers from each of the functions say, well, I'm too busy to do this, or I can't lend the time to it. That's when you need that empowered sponsor at a higher level to, to say, this is our business. We are doing this together. You know, the fact that HR leading or finance leading it is irrelevant because the outcome is for our business. So I think you've got the two levels. You have the functional sponsor because they live and breathe it, but you need that. I think that's right, Andy. I think you have to have a very strong connection with the, with the business purpose, the organisation objectives, the leadership team at the top. Because well, if you don't have that, it will not survive. You, you, you know that, as you say, Jason. You know people are going to leave. People will get politically knocked out, etc. But if you've always got that line of sight, clear line of sight with the the business strategy, objectives, cost, or whatever, you know the business case there at the most senior level in terms of whether whatever the business is going through. There's a better chance it will actually survive, and/or it will not so much survive, but it will actually deliver its objectives. So that's absolutely critical. And I think you know, as a sponsor or as a team around it, you've got to be continually kind of asking that question, not not just about the kind of whether the case is actually being executed and meeting its objectives, but also about you know where are we with with the whole business? Are we linking what we're doing with the whole business? It's much easier to do a transformation when there's a real burning platform. When you've got to just take mm-hmm. out a ton of costs or you've got to change people's behavior in a certain way for regulatory issues or whatever. The difficult things with transformation, I think, is when it's the business is not absolutely clear, you know, for a sponsor, why are we doing this? I'm going to use this coming round to business case, I think, is a, is a perfect time to sort of move on to our next topic, which is, you know, the definition of the problem. What are the best practices for binding the needs of the transformation, which uh, I think we've, we've nicely segued to? Uh, how important is it to define where the organisation is before gathering requirements or, 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 of course, starting the transformation and views on definitions? It's hugely important. So understanding, as we've already discussed, that whole business canvas and where is it that we wanted to be going to is hugely important. Go understand where it is today, where you want to go to, and then you can give the organisational assessment piece in the middle of it. So, so what does that actually mean for us? Which isn't just about technology solution as we all know you put a technology solution in that's a kind of tiny part of it it's the ways of working and all the practices around it that you're changing but I also think it's it's important not just to focus on numbers and figures and all of that it's also important to understand the external environment as well because you may end up making a decision which is right for today but may not be right for five years time and I think one of the things that organizations again tend to do particularly when they're really long programs you know two three four years as we know and as we experience you get to the end point you get it delivered but actually the world has shifted on in that four-year period so constantly looking at okay a much much longer term is hugely important on, on top of that and making sure you've got that external lens you've got to look at the data the current state um, a lot of people don't like getting into mm. this 
And a lot of people poo-poo the, you know, say, well, we're unique. You know, we don't need to look at a competitive environment. But you do need to really understand your cost base, what people are doing, what customers, internal customers think of, of, of what you're doing. So you can build consensus and build an understanding of, of what, what kind of change and transformation is, is required. And you need to look at the competition. Many, many times I worked in transformation and people say, well, we don't need to look at the competition or the company, you know, we're not the same, but you have to look at the external market. You must look at the external market. Otherwise you will never survive as an organization uh, as much as people don't want to. But, you know, and people will say things like, well, I don't want to look at them, but you have to look at that. Can I just come back with a question first? Yeah. Is there a danger there of looking at the competition too much? Uh, many years ago, I did a piece of work with TUI Travel who were obsessed with looking at Thomas Cook. And I met the CIO of Thomas Cook. He was the same, but obviously looking the other way. And of course, now both of them are in deep doo-doo. Not if you pick the right competition. They probably pick the wrong competition. The competition is the, is the business environment. Now, just looking at your own industry sector is frankly not necessarily the right thing to do. You have to look beyond your own industry sector. That's what transformates. If you're looking at digital enablement or the way people behave, if you're smart, you don't look at you just your own industry sector. You really need to understand your industry sector, but you should be looking beyond your industry sector. And that's when you get into these kind of difficult conversations. Well, it's not relevant for us, but you have to kind of look beyond just your sector. But you do need to understand your sector as well. Quite often, transformation is done for purely cost-saving reasons. And actually, my approach to transformation is where does the business need to be going? How is it going to change looking five, 10 years out and trying to anticipate that as best you can, which draws on the competition point as well, but also how jobs are going to change, how the market's going to change, et cetera. And then what's the functional or the element of transformation that you need to embark on today? And the business case needs to be informed by all of those things. So, of course, there's an element of, of cost cutting in, in these initiatives, but don't be overly focused on it. And I think that's where the business case can help. You can look at what's happening in specific markets or sectors or geographies, you know, what's happening with AI and the impact on, um, on jobs and therefore what kind of transformation, because they cost a lot of money. So you don't want to make an investment that actually two or three years down the line it has not been, you know, you haven't got your return on that. Yeah, I think there's a, a really strong point there with regards to the, the kind of length and duration of a programme. If we're trying to, to think four years ahead right now, between now and the next four years, there's going to be an enormous amount of change to the marketplace, to technology, to mm -hmm. things that are outside of the control and scope of, of the programme. I think that there's a piece at definition stage is, is being sensible on how far you can accurately define the outcomes. How far is that six months, is that 12 months? Being quite rigid with that and, and being very clear with it. And then beyond that, then just having those stakeholders in the ground, having kind of clarity to say, well, we can't, it's pointless us fully defining that now up front, because actually by the time we get there, there's going to be other opportunities, other technologies, other, you know, the marketplace is going to be shifting. You need to have, you know, a, a level of sensibility about it. You can't just kind of go off and start taking money out of the bank and, and start spending it. But I think there's, there's, there's an angle there of being smart about how, Far your vision is and how accurate you can be, and then reassessing that, and again yeah. going back to that continual improvement. Uh, you know, looking at transformation over a five-year period is is the right thing to do, and uh, looking long term is the right thing to do. But businesses, you know, they're looking at, uh, at six months a year. So I, I think with the transformation, you have to get whether we like it or not. Businesses require costs taken out. You know, you want to balance. I mean, there is obviously lots of benefits, but. To get it through gates, typically you do need to be able to provide, you know, some kind of monetary benefits. But there is a whole people behavioural change, which clearly you can see that's going to benefit the business beyond six months, a year, two years. But the, the long-term piece is, I think, often quite difficult to sell. Some of it must come down to your your governance structure and your decision-making to allow that that flexibility to, to take new inputs and new requirements. Have, have you kind of figured a way of doing that? Yeah, a, a couple of years ago, I was working with an organisation and we were looking at the way individual projects and programmes were actually being sponsored and how they're being funded. Um, they're a listed organisation and, and obviously they then had to, to forecast out from a, a fiscal perspective. Um, the thing that we were doing was, was actually trying to create a change 
capability and capacity that had a fixed cost, the projects and the programs that they would be operating on would actually be quite fluid. So that you could go into financial planning and say, okay, these are the things that we need to do. These are high level of objectives. This is the cost that we need to extract out or we need to reinvest from this area into another. Doing that in a way that allowed a lot more flexibility in how that money is spent and which programs are getting which funding and accelerated in, in which way. It's a difficult thing. I remember having a conversation with the CFO at the time, and he was very, very uncomfortable because he wanted to be able to allocate X millions of dollars against specific objectives, when actually what we wanted to say is, let's, let's not do that. Let's say we've got capacity. Let's get us that, make sure that's funded and, and set up, and then execute based on value as it's been defined within the program. So you can then say, we're trying to move this needle, and we believe we can move it by this much and it is going to cost us X. Therefore, you begin the program and then in small increments, and we're talking kind of three to six months, being able to then measure that needle and see how far have we moved it? Are we on trajectory? And if we are, great, go ahead. And if we're not, but we know why and we've got things that, and otherwise you, you can then start kind of culling those programs and say, okay, or, or at least deprioritize them to say, well, actually they're not quite getting what we need out of it. And then refocus those energies and those investments with relatively little pain into ones that are having more success. Um, he used a, a phrase of, of kind of making a lot more, but much smaller bets. So the ones mm. that are demonstrating that value are demonstrating the return. Okay, well, let's focus our energy. Let's focus our investment in that direction. That's really interesting. So you're, you're taking some of the ego out of it. This is yeah. one massive program, smaller smaller bets. And it's yeah. that kind of agility, not yeah. agile, but... Yeah, you know, they, they were a, a, an agile shop in, in that sense, but we weren't trying to do an agile transformation. Mm. We were trying to demonstrate business agility, actually, you know, and, and when we say demonstrate it, prove and measure it and say, these are the things that we're trying to move. These are how we're going to do and if we're not, that's fine. You know, taking the, the kind of fail fast um, theory probably to a, a little bit of an extreme, but you're, you're at least then cutting something three, six months in rather than two, three years in and then writing off those, those, those yeah. big values. And is it often misunderstood that actually, because when you talk to people, they often say, well, oh, this organization, you know, my organization, nothing ever changes, nothing ever works. But, you know, the people are bogged down in that sort of stasis, but they stay for, for, for whatever personal reasons. Are you seeing that, that move to, if you can demonstrate it, people do want to be more agile. They want to make their businesses better because they want to make their lives better so they can go home on time on a Friday. The thing that we had success with is, is defining those things up front. So we are going to move this. We're going to improve our net promotion score. We're going to have a run rate that's different. And, and you define that up front and you measure that almost daily. You want to be able to see whether that's 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 moving in and out. And you know, there are challenges with that where your navel's navel gazing a little bit, but at the same time, you're saying up front, this is the thing that we're going to move it, and this is the period of time that we're going to do with it it within. If you're doing that, the trajectory is right. People tend to say, okay, well, this isn't just another thing that's hidden, that's tucked away because we're trying to take some. And, and being transparent to say, okay, we do need to take two million pounds out of this thing. And so far, on our current run rates and on our current trajectories, we've got to about half. And these are the six or eight things that are going to get us to half, three quarters of a million and, and beyond. I think if, if you can you can be transparent, you can define it up front, it can then be measured. If you can then measure something, you can then start looking at some of the more softer things, the behavioral things of what does that mean to me if this needle moves? I'm totally with you on that. I think in my experience, once you've identified the kind of the measures and the benefits and probably almost, well, almost at the same time, it's really important to start talking to the organization about the benefits because there is a, obviously there's a kind of we need to take out typically there is normally a kind of cost issue mm -hmm. here but there are benefits to people's careers and the way people work and that's kind of thing of what's in it for them and, we, and that's really got to be thought through in terms of from a sponsor perspective, perspective about how we get this transformation bought in and delivered through the people because if people do not want this done they are going to make it very, very difficult for the sponsor to get this executed through all sorts of ways. And it's important to pick, A, to, to, to communicate you know, the benefits, but also to start to select individuals around the organization of this or who can help facilitate this with people with the right skills, the right mindset, et cetera. Yeah, I mean, it was exactly, exactly that point and, and kind of just, just building on that in terms of being known and understood. It's also got to play to those informal aspects of the organisation as well. And actually, 
yes, we all know the formula, how do I make decisions? It's going to affect the organizational structure, which is the KPI metrics. But actually, most of the stuff happens between the informal aspects. So around, actually, how am I now going to instinctively go, go, go to behave and take action? What's the commitment I've got to make? So actually, what is that shared vision now? What is that purpose now? Am I actually going to have to change my language, my beliefs in the organization? And I think, as a sponsor, being able to clearly articulate some of those things really from up front, because you're not going to know everything, is, is hugely helpful in being ensuring that that's known and actually under, and understood yeah. from that point of view. But again, the core thing for me about the, this particular subject is also being able to articulate the why. So this is where we are currently. This is where we've got to be in the future because of regulatory change or because of the fact that actually we're in a declining market. And that's the reason why we've got to change, and this is what it means. It's hugely important. And having understood and analysed that the impact of the transformation, which you've all just covered, is it essential to choose a particular change management model? And, and we know that there's, there's many out there now. Or, or is it slice and dice, pick and mix uh, from all of them? I, I think that there are multiple toolkits, multiple approaches. But I, I think to your point, look at the organisation, see what fits best, and also, I think in, in those early stages is what's going to be the easiest and most comfortable to get them used to being in this change journey and, and moving through it. So that isn't particularly bureaucratic, isn't overly complex. People can grasp it quite quickly. But that being tailored around the, you know, and it's not just the organisation, but also the individuals who are going to be executing on that change, the, you know, the change team, as it were. Yeah, professional services organisation I work for, partnership model, very, very consultative. So you could not go down working that organization with a very directive change. It just wouldn't work. So you'd have to have a different, you know, so it, it does depend on the culture totally. Otherwise, it won't work. Yeah. Well, but I think as well, it, it, it helps having a methodology. And again, mm -hmm. it, you know, it's kind of, from my point of view, it's irrelevant which one. They all have a common sense approach. But I think where, it, where you get the real benefit is stakeholder engagement and communication. Because actually, if there's a process that people are following, it is all part of that. So we've done this bit and now we're on to this yeah, bit and this is the next bit. So it actually steps through that change process in, in quite a clear and common sense way that you can hook various communication initiatives onto it. So freedom within the framework. Mm, yeah. As you say, it's it's right. It's got to be spoke. Yeah, it's got to be right for the organization because one thing's not going to work. You know, clinical setting is very, very different to professional services yeah. setting. You know, very mm. different mindset and also the span. But I absolutely think that yes, these are great frameworks, but got to make it work for, mm. for your organization. The problems that we've seen are less about selecting the wrong methodology, because you're absolutely right. They're all common sense. They're, 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 you know, you need to, to work with the culture of the business, absolutely, and how you apply them. The challenge that we see in a lot of organizations is they think about change management just before they go live. <laughs> what we've always advocated is, is really thinking about the change as part of the scoping and, and driving that stakeholder management right from the very beginning and going out to a broad stakeholder group of people from the business to, to engage them, to gather requirements, to seek their opinion and input. And it's the biggest resistance that we get from internal functions, you know, whether it's HR, finance, procurement, IT, doesn't matter. The operational people in those businesses, the work stream leads, the people that are accountable uh, for delivering that change, the resistance that we get to going and talking to their internal customers and asking them, what do you think? What's working? What's not working? What do we need to do to change? And don't just talk to us about systems, you know, talk to us about how we are, how we land with you, you know, the processes that we deliver. But doing it right up front is critical, but lots of people are really uncomfortable with it. I agree, Jason. It's often easier if you've got a new incumbent in place, mm -hmm. like, you know, if you have a new HR director, finance director, because typically... At that point, they've got more of a remit for change and there's no history there. I think often when you've got a very long established functional head, then they see it as a bit of a threat. Or, you know, that's in my experience anyway. Being in post as somebody coming in as you know, a potential sponsor of a transformation, how long do you have in post before it becomes your baby that somebody's going to tell you is ugly? <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't think there's like the time you come in. It could be what you're coming in to do. You know, it could be part of the reason why you've been selected. It could be actually you've been there a couple of years. So I, I don't think there's a length of time. Yeah. Yeah, you have to look at what else is going on in the organisation at that time, and and you may think as a come in as a new functional leader that actually 
there's another birding platform over there, so mine will have to wait. So, yeah. so I think I think it's situation dependent, mm-hmm. actually. I see too many organisations, to your point, Jason, where you get to the end point and they go, we need change champions. Who's the most junior in the organisation? <laughs> we're going to talk to all the senior management to say, this is what we're doing. This is what the new process looks like. And, it, and it, it, obviously, we all know it fails. When you've got the kind of the step down from the sponsor, so the operations manager or whatever they are accordingly across the organisation, owning that change, and I mean by owning it, you're getting the CEO to sit down with them to change their yearly objectives, to, you know, their, their, their payment, their, their benefit, everything comes out on living and breathing this new change. The change happens. It, you only don't need that when you've got um, a really sort of simple or a paradigm system change where it fundamentally is different. You cannot do something unless you go to this new system. Then you don't need massive change agent environments. You may get discomfort and everything else, but you can get to the end result. But when you're looking at transformation, you're looking at organizational change, you're looking at really changing the business to be more competitive, then you need these operations managers. People are running the business, it's their life, acting as those change agents. So. I think it might be going back to one of the points that we, we mentioned earlier on, which was having the sponsor and then the team around that sponsor being completely aligned with that change. Now, you mentioned kind of remuneration, which is always a hot topic, but I've seen, and I haven't worked with the organization itself, but I've seen it where outcomes of particular large programs that are remunerated across the board level and to a higher level than their own programs. So the change initiative may contribute 20% of of their remuneration bonus structure, um, but their own individual projects may only count to five. So they're, they're immediately aligned from a monetary perspective to say, okay, we've got to make this whole thing work and going to your point earlier around in terms of that resistance of, of having those interviews, having that transparency and opening things out, that may come down a little because actually they're nailed to the success of everybody around the boardroom, not just the IT director, the finance director, who are trying to execute and, and deliver on that change. You have to get the, you know, any transformation has to be integrated into the objectives of the organisation, into the performance management of the organisation. That's one of the biggest ways of getting change. It's obviously, it's, you know, you've got, it's, you've got to get the individuals, but you ultimately have to go and get it into people's objectives. This is where it gets down to the whole sponsorship and planning. Mm. It's absolutely critical to think these points through about how do we get people to behave in a different way. We've got these number of levers, yeah. emotional connection, we've got performance management, we've got remuneration, we've got a whole range of levers that needs to be sorted out right at the beginning. You're listening to the Underscore Transformation Podcast. This podcast is brought to you by Underscore, the transformation capability specialists. To find out more, visit underscore-group.com. Beginning to touch on it, but I mean, I increasingly hear all those talking about needing new capabilities. How important is it that uh, the organisation analyses and understands the capabilities it's got to carry out a transformation and... uh, and, and agrees on those and, and either builds them or goes and, and goes and finds those uh, those capabilities. I think it comes back to a conversation we are having earlier on, which is about understanding the canvas of the business. So, you know, understanding what you've got today, understanding where you want to be going in the future and what does that mean for capabilities all the way down from your, you know, your, your overall organisational capabilities house, whether that be level one and all the way down to four and into, into competencies. You have to understand that up front. And again, I don't think a lot of organisations even give credence to actually thinking about that as a starting point in terms of what's going to be going to be different but also making sure with those capabilities that there is clear exec accountability and just to add to that as well there is always a lot of conflict within the organization about who is on a change program and who's running the business and Sometimes there isn't the capacity, financial capacity to do both, but actually that is the right thing to do. There's also always the, you know, do you keep your best person on your, on your business as usual or do you put your best person into change? Um, and, and these are always tensions. And then ultimately you get somebody, always people who want to do both. They want a foot in each camp because, you know, it's part of their ego or part of, control or, or whatever their motivation is, it's hard for them to separate change and business as usual. And actually you risk, you know, damaging the business significantly if you're not really clear about resources for change yeah. and resources for business as yeah. usual. And actually you need that mix. You need to take people out of business as usual and put them into change because the change actually is part of the future. 
But of course, you don't want to forfeit the success of the business while you're doing it. So it's it's always a difficulty, always. That's one area where the government digital service and NHS digital has been very good with its firebreak methodology, which is to understand that BAU happens and is essential. Um, and, and the idea of the firebreak being there is no BA. Certain periods of the weekday month are a firebreak and you only work on change. And unless it's an emergency, BAU just has to... That has to be put aside. You talk about capability, and Catherine, you mentioned about where do you put your best people. Yeah, one of the ways I've kind of looked at it is if you're going to do the change, it's for the right reason. So why don't you have the best people on it? Yeah, and the way to bridge that gap is a two in a box approach. Because if I'm going to change the HR organisation, I want the best people from the HR organisation to lead this change with me because they're the ones that are going to run it. They're going to make it a success but they haven't necessarily got all the capacity or the capability in terms of the programme piece. And that's where I'd bring in um, the expertise to sit side by side with them. So between the two of them, they can define what the true roadmap is, what the, what the, the future world looks like, and then the how to get there. The biggest challenge when, you, when you're asking an individual to perform, to, to, have two, to wear two hats, I've got a change, I've got a change hat and a programme hat that's focusing on the future, and I've got an operational one. There is a risk that you become ineffective at both. So your BOU operations fail and you start to, the service starts to deteriorate and you start to get getting feedback from the business that things aren't going well. And your change program isn't delivering the value that you'd expect it to deliver. My view, you don't borrow somebody from an external consultant to come and do the change for you. The best way to sustain the change, in my opinion, is to have the people that are going to live the change once it's, once it's been implemented. Try and put those people onto the program supported by maybe expertise from elsewhere. Just, just to add that, I completely agree yeah. with you. Actually, getting other people in the organisation to see developing change capability in their leaders is really important skill. Mm. And actually, in my experience, there are not enough of the people who have that change leadership capability in businesses. Mm. And actually... Getting the, the the rest of the organisation to see that that is a real value add skill as part of their leadership capability is is something that's that, that's vital. I think there's there's also a piece around the organisation becoming more of a learning organisation. What I mean by that is is I, I see it a lot in transformation programmes where we want to be more of a data driven organisation, or we want the data to drive our behaviours or our outcomes. But I think that. To, to do that, there's, there's also something about interpreting that data and understanding and learning how to, to work with that, not necessarily from an operational set, but just from the, the people. Who is the best person in the HR department to do this change? Because from a change agent's perspective, that might be the person that's got the best communication. But actually, what you might want is Jeff, who's been with the organization for 15 years, knows all of those little rabbit runs that go through and all the informal com- communication channels, but he's terrible around a board table. So I think that there's a piece there around the organization looking at it, look, doing a base and understanding what their capabilities and capacities are, but also understanding as we go through it, that's going to change. That might change week one, month one, year one, being able to bend and flex and move around that. And as you were saying, that that kind of two in the box or pair programming, if you want to go down to a technical level, is where you've got two people, you've got that ability to have that BAU cover, as well as making sure that the the change that you're you're implementing is is heading on the trajectory and heading on the track that you want it to be. This, This capability point is a critical point because there's got to be a point in my view relatively early in the program with the most senior leadership capability and thinking not just about you know high level capability what our people need to be doing but you're thinking about well how are we going to make this happen who are the kind of people within the business we need to get into place to really execute this because if you take for example an hr function you know you go to a classic Ulrich model which you know business partners or whatever there are some people who will just not be capable of doing that and you have to kind of work out who are your key drivers and talent and you have to make some hard decisions quite quickly in the program to get the right people in i mean there will be some people who just will not be able to deliver or don't believe in it they'll say they believe in it but they don't believe in it and at some point, I think quite early on, the right person has to make some calls about getting the right people in place, whether it's, you know, I want to say people, I'm talking about consultants, key people within the business to drive this thing through. Because if you have the wrong people in place, it will not happen. And, and on that point, uh, and it, we touched upon it at the very top of the discussion about calling it a vision, 
how important is it for transformation to have a mission statement, a, a guiding light? Incredibly important. It's, you know, whether you call it canvas or vision or even actually it's a vignette, a bit of a story about what the world is going to be like in, in, in the future. And it's kind of where I come to in terms of being able to get people's emotional engagement by using powerful words to storytell for the future. I think it's hugely, hugely important. Like sometimes we spend a lot of time going, okay, does the vision fall into the definition of what vision looks like rather than being more authentic again? And actually just, you know, as a sponsor, really compelling view. Well, people people need, it needs to be real. People, it needs to be authentic. People need to believe it. However, however you do it, it needs to be believable. It, It is that authenticity and being able to demonstrate that whether that be through some measurements or something, even just you know, part of the story. This is what we did last month, last quarter, last year. This is where we are now and this is where, where we're going. But as you say, have, have, having that felt and emotional attachment to it backed up with some hard facts. This is what we've done or this, or, or the other way around, you know, the, 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 the carrot and stick profile. If we don't, we're going to lose X percent of our market share. If we don't, this other service is going to come out and retire X percent of our business over a wide period of time. And I think... That the authenticity comes in the actual color that you can paint within that picture, the detail that you can put with it, and then being able to then tailor that detail to the person that you're having the conversation with. So if you're speaking with someone in the finance department, you can tailor it accordingly, HR, operations, IT, whatever the case may be. But I think as well, in terms of sequencing of vision, I think some people feel that they have to start with vision. Where are we going? What's what's the big idea? You know, and, and and start trying to formulate it too quickly. And quite often, you know you need to change, but you're not quite sure what and how. And I think this is where the business case bit comes in. I think there's a lot of groundwork you have to do first before you can really say, right, this this is our vision. And and actually part of that as well is is really your stakeholder getting your CEO on board with it and and really working, iterating that with your with your CEO and the rest of the exec team as well, because they have to play a part in it. They you have to all sing from the same hymn sheet. So so I think don't feel stressed about not having a vision right at the beginning or or in the very early mm. stages. It will naturally evolve. It will become obvious at some point. But absolutely to your point, it needs then to be really inspiring, really authentic, really heartfelt. And that has to come across in whatever function you're in, you know, whatever uh, method you're communicating in that it has to be consistent and and uh, authentic. But uh, also to the previous comments that have been said, once you've got that vision, you do need that, I, I call it like a line of sight, like a string that goes right from vision, strategic objectives, you know, your design principles, your case for change, the compelling need why we're even doing this, all the way through to the requirements, the features of the things we're going to have, the benefits of those features and the realisation of that business case should go all the way back to the vision. You know, if we do this and that person can do that a bit quicker, then that will allow us to deliver that vision. It should be, I mean, one of the tests I, you know, I think is a good test is to be a, if we were sitting here, be a leadership team on a transformation to go around the room and ask each individual, what is the, what are we trying to do? Or to write it down and to see whether you get the same answer. Often you don't, but you know, it's really important to get this vision right, but it will take some time and it should be very simple backed up by a lot of information but the actual articulation of it should be quite straightforward it shouldn't take you more than a minute to talk about the vision and it feels slightly wrong to go from 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 vision to governance uh, uh like i'm popping a balloon there but um it, governance is essential but can it be the blocker of, of transformation programs do, do people get over over obsessed with governance does it prevent decision-making? How important is it to sort of decide if decision-making is centralised as part of governance or, or do you empower people with, with transformation and, and trust them to, to be almost self-governing? It's a really broad question. I kind of, if I talk about a bit of experience from my point of view about having a strong governance structure, I've been in organisations where actually where you've had that strong governance structure has enabled decisions, which is, let's pause. And potentially, if you hadn't had a structure, you could have carried on doing what you were, you were doing. So I think they're absolutely in, invaluable. I haven't experienced, although I'm aware of organisations where their governance structure has been overly strong. It's probably the best way of describing it. And where decisions have been completely at the top of the organisation. And I think, 
it's, it's always a hard thing to say, but the decision is got to be where it's best placed. And as a sponsor, you need to be able to determine that really, really clearly and listening to the counsel of the people around you to enable that decision-making around that. So I think for me, appropriate governance will lead to ensuring the right decisions are made in the right places. Mm. I'd be interested in anyone's thoughts in terms of, of trying to, to pick out tips or thoughts or ideas as to how you measure that appropriate governance, what metrics, what things do you look at? Because bring it into a, a very technical scope is, is if you take a team of engineers, developers and testers and tell them to go self-form, they love it. And actually the stuff that they produce is really, really good. What you need to do is make sure that that's actually going in the direction that you want it to and is strategically aligned. So it's an interplay that I see. And I think there's a really small margin between that, that appropriateness of actually this is this is hindering me because there's all this tape and I'm spending six weeks putting together a pack that I then need to produce again in four weeks, which means I'm losing two weeks every time I go forward. So it's that versus, you know, just Wild West and people going off and doing what they want. So I'd be interested around the table if there's any thoughts on that. From my perspective, and I think you'll be in some about because you talk about cross-functional activities and maybe the wrong phrase to use, but the empire building that you get as well causes a lot of challenge. So for me, good governance is when I've got the same level of happiness across those different functions because I've got them aligned. And the level of governance you put in play could usually actually start with an over amount of PowerPoint slides and, and metrics to force people to see the same commonality. But you can quickly, I find, bring it up just to the key decisions, but you've got the, you've got the, uh, the cadence that these, these people are coming together at a certain point to talk about the same thing. And you make that the decision point and, and rather than these other side conversations that are happening and side decision, decisions, because it's not just the governance of getting that meeting, it's the other things that happen. So we have a good governance meeting, but someone else then goes off and uses their other budget to make a different decision. So during that governance, you then start introducing budget controls and you know, maybe you get the, the, the cap of the overall transformation budgets. And, and the governance matures over time as well, I find, in organisations. And it becomes quite light, it becomes quite, quite easy to have those sessions, but the beginning parts of them are always really difficult to get everybody around the table because they've all got their own empires to, to go off and build. The challenge with putting framework around governance is, or every single organisation we talked earlier on, you know, is, is different, it's appropriate. And I think the reason why I use the phrase appropriate is actually it's very much about actually ensuring that it's adequately governed, the programme's adequately governed, the decisions are made, made in the right place, but it keeps on track and it delivers high performance. Now, I think if we use kind of some principles of governance, I think that may be a kind of different way rather than, than a framework around it. But I think it's really hard because every single organisation is different. Now, again, governance in a, in a clinical organisation, it can have a different tone to people's services and what's the risk that you're going to have and it's about playing to that. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. And I think sometimes I've seen a couple of models where it, it was overly governed and too much too many decisions were pushed up to the exec level. But equally, on the other side is a, a governance process where it feels more like stakeholder management than, than people really engaging in the decision. And uh, so, so I would agree very much with your point around what are the principles around what, what we're here to do, what responsibility do we have as part of this governance process. So I think there's different extremes. And, and I think You've got to find what's right for the for the organisation, but sometimes you need to raise that level of governance as well. And actually, what are we here to do? To do what responsibility do we have collectively? Yeah, I think you can certainly have too many people that can say no, and not and no clarity really on who can say yes, or the only person that can say yes is at the very very top of the organisation. Then sometimes those additional layers of governance are are just their bureaucracy and they're they're a, a means of not making decisions. But, but I do think there's a, there's a balance, though, isn't there? But I do think investing up front before you start is always time worth spent. Yes. Always. And connected to that, one of the things I found interesting reading the report was the, the difference between program managers and project managers. Um, what's the table's experience of both of those? How do they differ? Program managers not something I come, I've come across in my, my world um, Explain to me, and what are the differences? Um, so I thought this was a hugely helpful articulation. So when I was reading this document yesterday, um, 
have somebody sat next to me and they looked over my shoulder and they oh, that's the first time I've ever seen that clearly defined. I think it's hugely helpful in terms of my experience. I would absolutely, this resonated with me because I thought, okay, yeah, if I'd actually sat down and thought about it, I probably would have got to a similar type mm. of, of description. And I think often the mistake is made between programme and, and project and being really, really clear about that. So I think, again, as a sponsor, one of the key roles, making sure mm. you articulate that. So I, th- I think what's been hugely helpful is actually the three definitions that are actually in there. It's probably the first time I think if I'd written it myself or attempted to try and write it myself, I would have come up very, very similar. I think as a, as a sponsor, though, one of the things you need to actually do is, again, at the early stages, ensure that actually everybody understands the difference between these things and you've ident- clearly identified, you know, what's the difference between the project and, and the programme overall. There are many things that need addressing during a typical transformation. Uh, we've talked about vision statements. When you go from maybe a vision statement to having a sort of a design almost, so this is where we talked about how, this is where we're going to take the organisation and you're doing that when you're scoping that design and scoping, therefore, the, the whole transformation. What's the decision-making processes to do that design that strike the balance between the necessary and also pushing the boundaries of the business? It depends, again, on where the organisation is in its stage of development. Sometimes as a change agent, you are having to educate your exec team about what's happening in in other organisations, not not necessarily in competitors, but in other organisations. So there is an education point. You also have to put that change in the context of what else is happening in the business and and what pressures and priorities there are in in the organisation as a whole. So all of that has to factor into the design, the scope. And you can only do that with the exec team. You know, that you have to do your groundwork first and kind of have have a sense of direction, but you have to test that Mm. um, because there may be things that you're not aware of that actually would be in conflict with that change, which means you might not start it for six months or actually you have to start it to enable that business change. You have to start that aspect now. So, So from my point of view, it's always workshopping it with an exec team to really get everybody on board including yourself around, why can't I do this now? Because I have a real passion and I've got a vision for it and I I know how it will help. But actually, sometimes it's just not the right time. I agree, Kath. I totally agree with what you're saying. I think you've got to workshop it. I think design principles are very important, by the way. So getting the design principles right and then workshopping around the design principles. I think you've got to fundamentally focus on what you're trying to deliver around the transformation in terms of you know, how much do we look for to the future? I mean, you can, you should be thinking about the future, but you've got to execute on what has been agreed with the transformation with an eye to the future. I mean, for example, I guess, you know, if you're looking at picking technology, you know, you're clearly going to be looking at the design principles, selecting a vendor. That's where you, you can get yourself in a lot of trouble selecting the wrong vendor. Now, I think thinking about the future is, is important, you know, with that kind of a decision but not forgetting what you need them to deliver. But you have to execute on the transformation. You know, I think it, one of the dangers is getting too fluffy about the future. Mm. This gives, us, this gives um, substance to what you're trying to achieve, doesn't it? Yeah. When you're articulating the vision, this helps you def- this describe the how. Exactly right. Yeah. So you exactly know, right. This, the, having the right design of what it is that you're trying to achieve. Yeah helps you just articulate, okay, we're gonna, this is where we're going to get to. And by the way, this is how we're going to do it. We're going to transform X, Y, and Z. We're going to transform people, uh, processes, systems, technology, bring in AI, whatever. But you've got to have a, an element of realism about what you can do. And you can only do that at the very beginning. So if you do, I think you, um, Andy made a point earlier around, don't take your time in describing the vision. Because if you describe something that's unachievable, uh, I want to get to, the, to Mars, but actually there's no means of getting to Mars right now. So don't describe that. So create, understand the problem statement, create then with a the team, design what's the art of the possible. And then at that point, the vision can become much more real. I think often people try and design by system. So they look at the system, they design what the system can do. Then they design the operating model based on the system. And then they design the the targets for the operating model is going to break down. So you say, for example, the function, whether it sits under finance, you've got audit cash, record report, or you've got uh, HR. And so what I try and do is flip it on its head 
and get these uh, centres of excellence to define what their roadmap. So their roadmap in 30 days time of go live is they are going to be able to do this, but in 90 days, they're going to be able to do this in 120 or two years time, they can do that for the business benefit. Then that defines your design. You go, oh, in that case, so all you need from day one is as opposed to a thousand processes that you can do on your mobile phone, you just need all your data in one place. Then you can start. Okay, that's our that's our that's our mission number one, and that changes the 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 approach I find. Mm-hmm. So don't bore the ocean and have a clear roadmap owned by the the, the people within the CRE. Um, I think there's, a, there's another aspect as well, which is getting over the line in terms of yeah the design, the scope to start with. But you're in it, and then the scope creep. <laughs> and certainly, I I've experienced you know projects where actually people see a change process in train and actually think oh well if the system or or whatever you're doing is going to do that actually why can't you do this as well and can you just include that in your in your program and it's very difficult to to kind of put the brakes on and say that's out of scope no and you need to just keep checking all the time that actually from an organisational point of view, that wasn't originally in scope. Do you want us to bring it into scope or not? It happens both ways. I, I've never worked with anybody like that. To be honest, I've also seen things that it happened the other way. Where yeah. you, you you come up with a business case that's going to deliver, you a, deliver a certain outcome uh, and deliver a certain benefit. And uh, when you're through a programme, the only thing that matters actually is to go live. And at, uh, at that point, the only thing that matters is go live. And you start looking at your scope and you start going, oh, let's take that out of scope. Let's take the, this piece out of scope. You're, Hang on a minute. But the purpose of the the, 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 the the business benefit that we're to gain from it or the business case was all pinned down on us delivering this. And now you're taking it out of scope. So what's it going to do to the longevity of the program? So I've seen it the other way. So it's important for programs to... Whenever they're going through a, an implementation of any transformation, to always keep an eye on the A, the design principles, but B, what are we what were we trying to achieve from the very outset? And are we still on track to achieve that? Making sure that, that is measurable and tracked and referred to regularly. Otherwise, people forget that is the reason for it. And also you can't, you know, it's difficult to be able to say, right, you know. We've done it. That's why measurement is is critical, right? You know, this whole piece about, you know, Sharon was talking about understanding the canvas is key, but not just understanding it, but actually kind of putting some some measurement within that without it being too stringent. But you have to have measurement as part of that setup and part of that definition. There, there does need to be flexibility. I, I don't think I've worked on a project or a program, some description where there hasn't been some level of scope creep. I've worked on plenty where actually that scope creep is out of tolerance, but actually it's a bloody great idea. Yeah. It's fantastic. It's going to benefit the organisation and actually maybe a better project and programme than we're actually doing right now. Mm-hmm. Um, and trying to, to, to kind of switch lanes like that is, is in, and pivot is, is nigh on impossible. But I think it's part of that setup piece and it, it becomes more and more challenging when the rubber hits the road with the finance side in terms of, okay, how much budget do we set aside for scope that we have not yet defined? But having some acknowledgement of that that it will happen it always happens because you're in the subject matter on a daily basis you've got more people looking at this this change therefore more ideas uh, more communication is going to come out but being in a, in a position that isn't just contingency just that you know the 10 percent on top in case there's wriggle room actual real understanding that we are going to do things along this way that are going to give us insight that are going to lead to better and brighter ideas because we've been living and breathing this thing for a month a year a whole program but it is hard, and I think it becomes more difficult when you're then trying to justify that in financial terms. That's where the governance structure plays a key role, because it's not just about scope creep because somebody has a wonderful idea. It's about actually what business benefit are we going to get out from this? And is every and is everyone on the exec, executive steering committee, whatever governance structure is in place, bought into this scope be, um, being brought into the program? And I think the program needs to make a conscious decision about bringing that scope in instead of just sort of someone's idea, thinking, oh, this is a great tool, a great bit of innovation, let's just plug it in. And nobody in the business knows that that scope's being brought in. We talk about kind of taking scope to hit a, a deadline. Actually, there might be something that, well, actually, there's some benefit that we can realise now. We can go live tomorrow, go live early. We've only got 10% of the benefit, but we're going to ha- re- have the benefits realised for six months. Mm. 
And the benefit of that is X in monetary or cost saving or time or whatever the case may be. And it, it's, you know, obviously I'm a, a, an agile fan from my, my background, but at the same time, just having that flex to say, let, let's get something out there that is going to add real benefit because then also that helps with the communication, that helps with the understanding, that helps with the vision and also helps with the strategic direction you're setting. You say, okay, this is it. It's living and breathing now. We can sit and eat and taste and, and breathe this thing that we've put out of, of the, the program. Um, and we can then get feedback, real live feedback from, from it no longer being part of the change to actually being in BAU. People are using this piece of technology, changing the way that they're operating within the process or the people themselves. Conscious of time and, and people's busy days, a final question. A lot of people listening to this are going to be wanting to know how they go to the exec board to get investment for these uh, transformation programs. So around the table, how have you best got the investment to deliver on your transformation programs and, and would advise listeners to, to follow? It's not so much asking for the £10 million or whatever the thing is. It's articulating the missed opportunity unless we act now. Unless we do something We've got to, we, we do need to change. Why do we need to change? Because all organizations need to change. It's not just about digital disruption and all the stuff, but we need to be an organization that is able to change and morph based on market conditions, based on legislation, based on technological advances, AI, machine learning, whatever the case may be. But I think there is a piece there, but it isn't just around here is a material benefit for this investment. It is what we're trying to stop is a material loss by doing something that is, is going to organizationally benefit everybody um, and, and align with our goals. So I, I tend to use that as a second or third stop, <laughs> you know, the, the traditional business case, the traditional benefits, but actually the, the, this is what you're going to lose unless we do something and then putting the, something, two, three, four ideas forward for that something. Having been on exec boards at a number of different organisations, so, you know, it's just something that we, when people come along, what we need to be able to see is, you know, how does it link to the overall strategy and direction in terms of short, medium and long term? Doing it in a way that avoids getting deep technical, okay? Because mm -hmm. one of the areas I think lots of organisations or lots of individuals come along make it really, really technical and then you sit there and go, oh, idea what that means and being able as you say to really articulate what that business benefit is going to be but also being able prepared to come to talking about you know how we're going to kind of in, you know move forward across the organizations all of the things we talked about how you're going to get people emotionally engaged with it how it's going to but doing it in a snappy way that you've got the exec's attention and that actually it becomes so compelling but they have to make the right decision for you from that perspective. This is where kind of the art and the science of transformation yes. come together. Yeah. You know, you, you have to have fully understood the strategic direction. You need to have gone through the whole exec board, got them fully engaged. You need to understand their... Yeah, absolutely. You know, that pre-proofing, you know, you've, you've put it in front of them, so they've, they've kind of thought about it before you get to the decision. But even before that, if you haven't engaged with every single member of that, that exec committee and understood from them what do they think needs to change, where are we going, what are we doing, how well are we performing today, trying to influence them later is going to be quite tricky. But So there's that, that human side to it, um, but, but then there's the numbers. And, and that's where the really fascinating stuff comes because the, the exec will have a pretty clear view of, of what needs to change. Um, the managers in the business, if you go and get their input, they'll have a, a fairly clear view. Hopefully, there's some alignment between those two things. Not always. Um, but when you actually get into the detail and look at the numbers and a lot of the benchmarking that we've done uh, with Richard and uh, we've done ourselves, you know, you, you, you think you know what the problems are. But it's only when you look at the numbers and you, you start comparing where we are today versus the market you just uncover nuggets of information that you had no idea existed. And these are the one or two pieces of information that will turn the entire business case. The direct answer to your question is that will be the easy bit getting into that meeting. The, as Jason was saying, really, it's about six months' work of consulting with the board, understanding, putting together a case and getting it verified. That's that's where that's where the work is. Getting actually getting to the board. By the time you got to the board to deliver the, the presentation, you'll know whether that's going to be accepted or not in most cases. But you've got to have a business, a hard business case with all this, these things. The boards typically will not accept anything without there being some financial benefit. But you need the you know you need the other stuff as well. In my experience. They will be always looking at the numbers. 
as the start as, as, as the baseline. Yeah, I think just kind of the point I was coming to is that it's it's numbers and it's the other the other yeah. metrics which link to the purpose of your organisation. So if your organisation is increasing about you know increasing access to housing. You know, how does it deliver the number but also increase access to housing or if it's about jobs or whatever? So I think you have to have the two there or else it just becomes purely financially driven, which kind of can detach away from the purpose of your organisation. Transformation doesn't always have to be about cost saving. It often is, and majority of times it is, but, you know, we've got direct experience of a business case which increased the run rate, the budget, by 10% of the function that we were transforming on top of a £10 million investment. So that, that was made on strategic arguments and arguments about how the business was managing its broader capability and uh, the existential risks that it faced for not managing it effectively. So yeah, it, it is often about cost saving, but it really doesn't have to be. Uh, there, there are always these nuggets of information that, that can mean you can uh, increase your budget at times. Yeah. But ultimately, there'll be a return on investment, even yeah. from that, yes. from an argument where you're asking for increased budget. Yeah. Because actually, I'm increasing budget, but this additional budget is going to give you this extra value or this extra capability that we don't have today that's going to give you better sustainability of your business, whatever. Yeah. Uh, so you still have to articulate in those terms. One of the key points I would make is involve finance. You have to involve finance in all of these discussions or business cases. Otherwise, it won't get through. And, and actually, that's part of building your business case to start with, isn't it? You, yeah. you, have, you go to finance and say, give me someone who's part of this team building this business case. There's a business case that doesn't stand the test of time. And you then um, are faced with a set of decisions that you have to make two, three years later that actually to pay back this ROI that you've committed to against a set of numbers that weren't real. So you then have a choice to make. Do I rebaseline all the numbers and have a conversation with the exec, with the board around these numbers weren't right? Or do you then continue to deliver your program against a set of business case numbers that were fundamentally flawed. So paying attention to the business case from the very beginning is vitally important. And I think on paying attention to the business case, that is a perfect uh, way to, to wrap up a fantastic debate. Thank you all for joining us today. Uh, excellent contributions throughout. Uh, I've learned so much. I hope everyone else has learned so much. And uh, please tune into the podcast coming soon. This podcast was brought to you by Underscore, the transformation capability specialists. To find out more, visit underscore-group.com. You can subscribe to the feed via your favorite podcasting app. You can contribute to the conversation via our WhatsApp group. And if you would like to feature in a future recording, contact us on social media to find out more.